What's insane is that it's February. Hey, do you remember when it was 2011 and now it's 2020? And also, it's not only 2020, but it's February 2020? That's insanity. Somehow January didn't exist. I don't understand. The Super Bowl's over. The scummy Kansas City Chiefs won. No one likes them. Literally no one likes them. You know how they had those videos of people in Kansas City cheering? Those people aren't real. And I'm glad that they won so that they can go into obscurity for 50 more years. And that's what I want. And that's what I hope for the Eagles too. I hope the Eagles set the world all-time NFL record for number of years between Super Bowl victories. And I hope that they set the number at 700 years. I want to be dead and I want my children to be dead and I want my children's children to be dead before the Philadelphia Eagles win another Super Bowl. And that's my thoughts on the football. Anyway, welcome to the episode number 69 featuring the great Dr. David Warmflash. He's an astrobiologist, space medicine researcher, author, author of his new book, Moon and Illustrated History from Ancient Myths to the Colonies of Tomorrow. It's a fantastic book. We've talked about it on here before. He goes through some of the most important moments in the history of the moon, from the formation of the moon, from the formation of the earth, to exploring the moon with humans and into the future. It's a fantastic book. And you might be saying, Brendan, I love books. I'm a book guy. You might be saying, Brendan, I'll read seven books a year. I'll read 16 books a year, but I can't buy that many books a year because books are expensive. And to that, I have to say to you, have you considered getting it for free? And you might say, Brendan, you can't just get books for free because I tried going in the Barnes and Noble and just taking books before and they get pissed. But then to that, I would rebuttal. I would one more time say that have you tried going on my Twitter and entering to win this book for free? Listen, we're giving away the book. We're giving away David's book. It's a fantastic book. You want a $20 bargain, $25 bargain. If you go to Barnes and Noble, it's like a $70,000 bargain because Barnes and Noble charges somehow too much money for paper. Here's what you do. Go my go to my Twitter, go to my social media. All you have to do is share the promotional materials for this episode. So I will upload a tweet that says, "Hey, check out this episode. It's a great episode, episode 69 featuring Dr. David Warren Flash blah 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 blah." All you got to do is retweet it, like it, share it, whatever you do. Then throughout the week, I'll upload more promotional stuff like I always do. I'll upload videos, I'll upload advertisements, retweet those, you're entered to win. You, all you got to do is Take two seconds out of your day, share the show, and you're in to win the book. We'll send it to you. It's easy. That's all you got to do. It's a free, it's a $70,000 bargain, depending on where you shop for books. Okay? So just do that. Be entered to win the damn book, and you're good to go. Dr. David Warmflesh, he's a science advisor for Let's Rover the Moon, which is a new startup, which is aiming to put rovers, several rovers, on the surface of the moon to do what should have already been being done. He's involved with that. He's involved in space medicine. He's involved in astrobiology, in NASA's Jupiter Icy Moons Orbiter Science Definition Team. Too many words, NASA. I need you to stop using so many words. NASA, here's your 2020 New Year's New Decade resolution. Less words. You want to know why less words? Because it shouldn't take me a minute to say one title of one human on one of your teams. And that's just a fact. So stop it. Use less words. He's also collaborated with the Planetary Society on three experiments that have flown small organisms into space, one of which, very sad, I know, several years ago, the anniversary just passed, one of which flew on 
to Columbia, which ended up being one of the biggest disasters in the history of human spaceflight, and arguably was a catalyst that made us stop putting Americans into space off of American soil. It broke up on re-entry, killed all seven people on board, and Dr. David Warmflash had samples on that mission. He talks to us about that. He talks to us about what that meant. He talks to us about being on the, the pad, the landing pad, on site when it happened. We talk about what's to come in spaceflight in 2020. What should you expect in the next decade, in the next year? What's coming? What's going to be in front of your face? Are we going to get to the moon when they say we're going to get to the moon? David Warmflash maybe doesn't think so. He explains why. He breaks it down. What are we doing in 2020? Mars 2020. We're going back to Mars. He breaks it down for us. Now, I've said it already. David Warmflash is involved in medicine, in astronomy, and physics. Those two things, medicine, astrophysics, are arguably the biggest fields where you find rampant pseudoscience everywhere. So he's, he's involved, much like I'm involved, in trying to curtail the pseudoscience, get rid of it, break it down for people, explain people real science, cut the bullshit, etc. What efforts can you make? How do you convey to people that the stuff that they think they know is in fact bona fide horseshit? Okay, good question. Excellent question, Brendan. Do I know the answer? I think I might. Listen to find out. Here at this point in the episode, you might be thinking to yourself, Brendan, I really like you, and I actually love your voice. And if it was up to me, I would I would hire you to follow me around all day and speak and narrate my life. And to that, I will say I won't do that, and I can't do that. But here's what you can do. You can follow me social media. You can subscribe on YouTube, at Brendan Drackler, on Twitter, on Instagram. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. Find me, thestateoftheuniverse.com. Rate the show five stars wherever you listen, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. I don't care. Rate it five stars. Leave a review. It helps, and I love you for it. Subscribe on YouTube. You know the drill. Please, thank you. You're the best, and that's the only way that you can get me to follow you around all day. Because it turns out that every year, I pick one person who did one of those things I just mentioned, and for the next year, for the whole next year, I follow them around and narrate their life. Enjoy the show. Thank you for tuning in. Appreciate you. Give it up for Dr. David Warmflush. Okay. Uh, 2020, new year. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you are if you got any New Year's resolutions, David Warmflash. No, I, I don't do that because it never works. No, it doesn't. Um, yeah, it, it's like the space program. Like when we have, uh, we'll go, the only time we ever made a decadal resolution, I guess, was Kennedy uh, before the end of the decade and Man on the Moon. Mm-hmm. We actually had a year to go because technically the decade is at the was at the end of 1970 same with this decade right well we have a we have sort of a a goal in place right 2024 men and women back yeah. on the moon yeah but we're not really going to get uh, people on the moon in 2024 that that's a little too soon yeah you think so so what are you uh what are you looking forward to in 2020 in terms of space flight oh a whole bunch of things i mean a lot of missions so we got um uh, a few different Mars missions. First yep. of all, you got the Mars 2020. I'm really looking forward to that, and the Sherlock instrument. You know about that? That's Ex- um, explain that, whole, please. So it's a whole uh, range. It, it it stands for scanning habitable environments with Raman luminescence for organics and chemicals. Too many so words. Kind of a mouthful. Yeah, there. yeah. But uh, basically, looking for organics. Yep. So, um, in uh, we're, we want to we want to um. 
the whole astrobiological setting uh, understand Mars. So a major component of that is the search for organics and then the characterization of all the organic molecules that, that we could find. Right. Um, the, the cool thing about... We only know about a few of them right now. Right. Um, one of the awesome things about Mars 2020 is the scout. That might be the thing, mm-hmm. like other than human spaceflight in 2020, yeah. the scout might be the thing that I'm looking forward to the most. Um, but there's also ExoMars from, from ESA. You know, right. that, that's a huge thing yep. too. And there's a, uh, there's also focused on moving toward life detection. And that's the, mm-hmm. the Mars Organic Molecule Analyzer, uh, MoMA. And that is, and it's got a rover. Uh, and the rover is named for Rosalind Franklin, which uh, I think this year is her 100th uh, birthday. Would have been her 100th birthday. She died very young mm-hmm. uh, at 37 years old of ovarian cancer. Yeah. So I want to come back to something you said because it's it's yeah. super interesting. You said you, you don't have confidence we're getting to the moon by 2024, right? Um, we can talk about why you don't have the confidence, but 2024 was chosen for a reason. Uh, 2024 was chosen because that would be the end of Donald Trump's second term. And he probably, like all presidents, wants to be me- memorized or commemorated for doing something magnificent in spaceflight. Um, this has been something that's been done for a while. I talked to a spaceflight historian a few months ago, uh, Dr. Yeah. David Fisher. Actually, this month he was on again. And he talks at length about how every time you have a new administration, all of a sudden the space program gets sort of revamped because – Every president wants to have a lasting memory of them achieving something. So with Bush, he wanted to go to the moon. Obama said, no, 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 let's go to Mars. Um, then, you know, Donald Trump comes in and he wants to go back to the moon. And 2024 is deliberate. It's not realistic, maybe, but it's deliberately chosen. Um, mm-hmm. You don't think we're going to get to the moon by 2024. Do you think that's a funding problem? No, no, I, I just think like we don't have the lander isn't developed enough and mm-hmm. uh, we, you know, which is a little bit too soon. Uh, I think so we're talking about the Artemis 3 mission, uh, which will be the first time landing humans on the moon since 1972. Uh, and Artemis 3 is bound for the region of the lunar south pole. Just giving a little summary for the, mm-hmm. for the listeners. And which is a totally different uh, part of the moon than we've ever uh, landed on with people. Although the Chinese have gotten in that pretty, not exactly in the region, but, but close to it. Yeah. Um, near the, the South Aiken Basin. And um, we want to get really close to the, to the South Pole because of, uh, it's, it's a possibly a good location for, for a base to have long-term human operations. And I think we're, we're going along, we're, we're making progress, we're doing the right thing. Uh, but, um, maybe in the Artemis two mission, which would be a, uh, um, kind of an Apollo eight style mission, uh, mm-hmm. maybe that by the early 2020s, by the, through, by the first half of the decade. Right. So if, if you were, um, let's, let's imagine David Warmflash that you're in charge of the budget and Donald Trump comes to you and says, we want to get to the moon by 2024. What do you think? What first off, we need to spend a lot more money, right? Um, I've been yeah. told by many people in the in the spaceflight community, people that work at NASA, people that work in the in the field, that we could get to the moon, you know, three weeks from now, if we had an infinite sum of money. Um, now, yeah, sure that that's 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 true. I don't know if three weeks is is realistic, but yeah, we could mm-hmm. we could do it. We have hardware 
to yeah. get into orbit around the moon with the Orion spacecraft right. and the SLS launch system. So what is supposed to happen at the end of 2020, which I could put things that might be coming in 2020, although it's probably going to get pushed to 2021, say all the experts, is Artemis 1, which is going to be the first time there's a test of both the um, the Orion and the SLS system together. Right. Yes. They launched Orion, mm -hmm. but not with the SLS launch system. So this would be the equivalent to the uh, the first uh, unpiloted test when they launched Apollo with the Saturn V launch system, uh, like um, Apollo 4, Apollo 6, that type of thing, uh, with no people on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that, that is the lead up to uh, Artemis 2. So we have everything ready. We have the equipment to to do an Artemis 2 mission. So if we had a huge amount of money, we could do Artemis 2. I don't know how soon, whether three weeks is probably hyperbole. But but you got to put it in perspective with what kind of uh, an attitude we had in the 1960s, which was, this was the space race, mm -hmm. and NASA's budget was something like four and a half percent or five percent of the entire uh, federal right. budget, wasn't exactly. it? Something like that. Yeah. And so that's like uh, it, the equivalent of the budget today. It's it's more than ten times what it is today. Exactly. And so the whole idea of the Artemis program in every program with the NASA, both the uh, the human uh, space program and all the fantastic um, robot missions that, that are coming and that have launched to this point is to is to do this, but not with this kind of uh, space race, uh, JFK, LBJ kind of budget, but with, uh, with, with NASA being just one of many agencies that's competing with all the other federal agencies that are all trying to do everything else. So mm -hmm. if uh, if Trump were to ask me, oh, you know, can we get to the moon? And have to say, well, are you going to be able to get Congress to authorize X and X amount of money and a, a huge chunk of the budget? So I don't yeah. see that coming from anywhere from anybody. Yeah, one of the any candidate of any party. No, it's it's. Isn't it? I don't know. Okay, I'm. I was born in 1995. I haven't watched many sort of presidents rise to stardom. I would say, in fact, I've only seen two presidents in my life. I would say Obama and and uh, Donald Trump. And when I say seen, I mean like yeah. actually been involved in the politics, um, yeah. in some way. And in both of those cases, there was no on the on the um campaign trail there's no mention of space there's no mention of nasa there's no mention of science there was very little mention of any of it uh, for both of them yeah yeah it's, and i think the most um uh democrats kind of lost who was potentially the most scientifically oriented candidate had to drop out that's cory booker mm -hmm. um and I, maybe he'll end up on the ticket in the, in the vp spot uh but not not that he was necessarily pro space any more than anyone else. But he had more of a he still has more of a, a scientific uh, uh, frame, more of an evidence based approach to, to policy. Yeah. What do you uh, think about Andrew Yang's evidence, though? What do, what do you think about this idea that technology is gonna like? He's someone that yeah, interests I, me. 
he, he's interesting, but I, I don't take him seriously as a candidate. And I, uh, I, I personally, I want someone who's had, uh, who's held an elected office, a high elected office. I think we do need the experience and we should be now of all time seeing Trump. Um, we, we, we shouldn't ever want to have someone in the presidency who's, who's never the high government office, who has absolutely no idea how, how government works and, and what the presidency is. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think anyone could be as bad as Trump. I mean, Trump apparently doesn't know the difference between a, a president and a king. So, yes. Uh, yeah. But I, so, I, I, I mean, I, I'd be okay with a constitutional uh, amendment to make, make it a requirement that you hold some kind of high office before you can run for the presidency. Oh, I, I wouldn't. I would be super opposed to that. I feel like oh, here's my thing with policies. I always think we're going to talk about yeah. this later a bit with vaccines. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm on the fence about even legislating vaccines being required. And here's why. Because I don't I, – I tend to think deeper about how much of a slippery slope it could be, right? And so I think like, great. It's a great idea to require certain vaccines, measles vaccines. Um, vaccines that pr- protect against STDs, vaccines that protect against, you know, sp- spreadable pandemics. But when do we start having a slippery slope where all of a sudden we start mandating that people get shots that maybe aren't necessarily required? And um, do, do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, well, uh, uh, I understand y- your, your your point of view, but I don't necessarily agree with your point of view. I, I, do you think it's a slippery slope? That we require seatbelts and airbags. Uh, do you think it's a slippery slope that we, uh, uh, you know, you can't just start burning rubber tires outside your in your backyard? Uh, there, there are a lot of things we do for the public good, and uh, vaccines are one of them. Because you're, if you don't vaccinate your children and send them into the public school system, mm-hmm. uh, you are affecting other children, immunocompromised kids. You can't get certain vaccines, uh, and and that that is not just. Uh, first of all, it's another person. It's your child. It's not you. Right. And no, second, I thousand. I one thousand percent agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, and second, it's it's affecting other people. So, um, I mean, in the military, they make them get all their shots because they're they're. Um, they're going in there with other soldiers. They, you can't have uh, an epidemic of uh, of meningitis. Let's say if you're not you're not vaccinated against the the organism that causes meningitis in young adults. Mm-hmm. So that's um, uh, that that's there's an issue always between balancing personal freedom with right. uh, with the benefit of the group and. We do, we do have this kind of societal organization where we live as groups and we affect one another. And when it's a situation in which it's, a, it's an issue that's backed by experts galore, uh, yep. in, in that, that's the case of vaccination, then what's the problem having, having that required? I can think of a lot of other things that are uh, required that maybe shouldn't be required. Um, so like the, okay. So like the, do you get the flu shot? Yeah. yeah I, I got mine in uh, October. Okay. I haven't gotten the flu shot in like two decades. Um, I don't know why I don't get the flu shot. Never got it. 
except for when I was a kid, my mom always got it for me. Um, I'm not opposed to the flu shot, right? But is there a societal benefit to everyone getting the flu shot? I just don't know. Like, I literally have well, no clue. Well, uh, for you personally, I mean, you should consider that people die of the flu every winter, every year. Yep. There are people dying of the flu, including young people, including people in their 20s. Uh, remember last year, was it a year or two ago, someone else, did I, uh, someone I know who works in the ICU just mentioned one. 20 something patient that they lost. She hadn't gotten her flu shot. So we're, we're not where we need to be with flu vaccination. They're constantly working on the universal vaccine. Uh, there's a group at the Weizmann Institute in Israel that's made some progress toward a universal influenza vaccine. Mm-hmm. And then it will, it will cover everything, any in version of, of, uh, influenza. We're not at that point yet. I don't yeah. know how many years that'll take. For now, what we have is imperfect. Uh, some years, it gives you better coverage than other years. But what's the case is that even if you do get the flu, you're much likely to get a much uh, lower grade version of the flu if you have had the shot than if you haven't. It, it'll give you some protection if you if you get uh, one of the or if it's a flu caused by one of the organisms uh, against which the vaccine protects which is most of the cases of flu, then it's going to give you some protection so that you won't, you won't be out as long and you're, the chances of having severe respiratory complications leading to life-threatening pneumonia or something like that right. uh, are, are a lot lower. So it's a, it's a, it's a probability thing. So would you, like, just, would you like if the flu vaccine was mandatory? That is, I don't think it's going to be. Because we, uh, it's not, it doesn't work well enough for it to be mandatory. Right. So it's this is, like, this not is not like the MMR vaccine. That correct. Is so effective. Yeah. This is what so I'm talking would, about when I say, for, for, yeah, this is what I'm yeah. talking about when I say slippery slope though, yeah. is this exact idea is like, there's going to be vaccines in the, in the future of humanity. There's going to be vaccines that don't work well at the start, right? They're not yeah. going to work well and they're going to potentially cause complications in the future. Medical science, all science, all science starts off being not perfect, okay? Mm-hmm. That's a fact. Um, we get better as we go. So that's why I say it's a slippery slope is in the future we're going to have vaccines that aren't effective at first. And the slippery slope is that we then mandate those vaccines. Um, and of course, of course, you open up the avenue for pharmaceutical companies to begin um, pushing vaccines through this legislation that would be put in place to make profit from the government. Um, which I wouldn't put past yeah, pharmaceutical I, companies. I get you. I get what you're saying, but look how we we're not on a slippery slope. You, you talk about, but it's a slippery slope. But look, the actual situation is that we have vaccine schedules, and we have we have a pediatric mm-hmm. schedule, we have adult schedule, we have schedules for for uh, immunocompromised people, for older people, and and everything organized where it's like you are required to get this particular vaccine when you put your kids into school in the school system they send you uh you know notices that yeah. these uh-huh. are the vaccines yep. that are required and and you put the the dates and the boosters and all that and it's not all the vaccines that are required so then it'll give you a list of some these are required and these are so it seems to be that we're doing a, given the the level of vaccine technology at the moment we're we're doing a pretty good 
balancing act between um, requiring requiring mm-hmm. effective yeah. vaccines and not requiring certain other vaccines. Yes, I am uh, so perfectly. We're not, we're not taking a slippery slope, right? I'm not a doctor, and and um, I listen to the expert advice of doctors like yourself. And so when it comes to like schools, right? I well, am, I'm not a vaccine expert, right? I mean, but you obviously know well, more about vaccines yeah. than I do. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I'm perfectly fine with schools requiring that students uh, take a certain vaccine schedule, like you're talking about. Uh, I just, I guess I'm too much of a libertarian in my life. Like, I don't like to, I understand what you're saying, benefit of the group, and I agree with you on like 95%. But I guess I I don't trust government yeah. to make good decisions because government... I, I suppose I'm not a libertarian. I, I'm, uh, I'm more of a traditional, um, classic liberal. Yeah, although which give is, me give me is, free healthcare. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so you want free healthcare, but not required uh, preventive measures. You know that. That's, no, I want required preventive measures, but yeah, I want smart I people mean, to make the decisions. Yeah, and I don't think. Well, go- maybe that maybe the issue is we need to get more technically minded people in the government. That is the issue. Maybe we need more doctors in government more scientists in government i think there's one scientist lawyers, in congress right one scientist in congress right now i don't know the exact number but there're not too many yeah yeah so that yeah that's the issue is that the incompetent morons that run um, the majority of united states political systems i don't trust them uh, mm-hmm. yeah so i don't yeah, understand why there's I, not I term limits on all so of these what, positions when I was an undergraduate, uh, Carl Sagan came to visit uh, to visit my university, and he gave two talks. Mm-hmm. So he gave one talk in the astronomy, well, in the physics department uh, about it was about the astron about the robotic missions to Titan. I think I think that was the focus. That was really really good fun yeah. lecture. I even got to ask a question in that lecture. Mm-hmm. But he also gave a lecture for the general uh, population of the university uh, in, in the, you know, much bigger audience mm-hmm. and uh, in a fine arts center, a big, you know, big venue. And uh, somebody asked, it was during one of the presidential, uh, I forgot which one it was, uh, but there were a whole bunch of Democratic uh, candidates running against a Republican. And um, if it, I don't know if it was like against Reagan or Bush, I, I'm <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. But but was there a whole bunch of Democratic uh, candidates? Mm-hmm. And someone asked him about. Uh, first of all, someone asked him why doesn't he run for president? And they asked about the Democratic or the candidates who's who's going who's better for for the future. And he said, well, I think all the Democratic candidates are better than all the Republican candidates. But then he says, but let me give you some perspective on that. Imagine it's the year um, 1789 or mm-hmm. 1770, whenever they started with, I guess it would be 89 for, for presidential elections in the United States. Yeah. It's like it's it's the end of the 18th century and uh, you've got a room full of people. you got uh, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, George Washington. Um, Thomas Paine, and you got like on the order of like 10 or 20 people, um, all, any of whom would make an amazing president. Yeah. Um, 
And, and now we got like a hundred times that many people in the country. Mm-hmm. And this is all we've got. So the question is, where are those genius people that were around all in that one room in, in Independence Hall in Philadelphia in 1776? They must be doing other things. They're not doing politics. They're, they're, they're in science. They're in engineering. They're in some cool fields like yeah, that. Yeah. No, I, I 100% agree. Um, we're going to get off politics in a second, but I have one more p- yeah. political-minded question. Mm-hmm. Um, Donald Trump, if Donald Trump loses in 2020, or if Project Artemis doesn't get to the moon by 2024 and has to be delayed beyond that like you think it will, and Donald yeah. Trump leaves office, do you think that the project will be continued? Or do you think that this... this um, oh, yeah, it- there's sort of a, you know, a pattern here. Do you think it will be canceled and okay. vetoed for something greater? No, I, I, I actually I have a totally different perspective on this. I actually think that humans going back to the moon and the United States playing a big role in that um, is much more likely without Trump in office. Uh, and, and here's why. Um, I'm... I think that the Iran situation is very, very serious. I don't want to be alarmist about it and say, um, kiss your family goodbye, but I think it's, it's, it's always been very alarming how he got us out of that treaty, which wasn't a perfect treaty um, mm-hmm. near the beginning of his presidency. And, and, and now things are escalating, and um, Iran is not Iraq. The military is a very serious military one one of one of the biggest most powerful militaries in the world uh especially the the army Uh, and and i i I think if things keep going down the road it's going we're going to be in a major military conflict with iran that's going to make the iraq war and the afghanistan war look look like uh, child's play and that we won't we simply won't have not saying we're you know we're going to be annihilated Mm -hmm. but we will be so will be so involved in that. It'll be like the last few years of Vietnam that just pulled us out of the space program because ah, we I were see. just so worked up about that. Yeah, it's just we won't have money. We won't have uh, the focus to be able to to be in this kind of future minded uh, positive vision. It, it it'll be that bad. And that and um, that's the case. Whether it's um, that the Democrats defeat trump in november or that uh vice president pence takes over uh i think in in either case it's going to be better for the space program just because it's going to be less likely that we'll we'll be in a in a war with with iran right and sapping resources from yes yeah no i i understand Yeah. yeah um now that said if you look at all these other presidential possibilities there's, there's probably a difference between the different candidates as who's going to be much more favorable uh, mm-hmm. toward a human space program. I mean, some of the Democratic candidates, like I, I would not um, be surprised. N- n- nobody says, oh, I'm against space. But some of them, you just don't get the idea that's the priority. Right. Like if Bernie Sanders were president, somehow I doubt that the space program would be high in the priority list. Uh, and 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 that that the funding would 
well, if if uh, Congress agreed with him, if, if he had enough of a of a kind, he could had the ability to actually to lead Congress. I I just I think it would be a pull away from space, but I I don't think it's realistic to think that he'd be president anyway. I'm not, I'm just saying that hypothetically, right? Uh, that 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 would be the case. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's transition yeah. in in more of the moon talk. You're you're yeah. involved in a startup. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's called Let's Rover the Moon. What is it? Yeah. Yeah. So that's an Israeli startup, and so what that is is the uh, the manager of Space IL which came pretty close to a soft landing uh, back in April, which we all remember that. Mm-hmm. That was the, the Breshit probe. Uh, from Space IL, and the, the manager started this uh, initiative called Less Rover the Moon. Uh, and it's in the very early stages where it's trying to raise money, and we need uh, very wealthy donors, basically, uh, just like Space IL got a lot of money from uh, from a donor, and so the hope is there will be there will be some funds, and then it'll it'll start. I don't know if it's going to end up being a nonprofit or a profit. It's that early that it's not even clear what what the, what the business model will be of the company. But you can tell by the name, and this won't be the actual name of it. This is all the name for the initiative, mm-hmm. but the idea is to get rovers onto the surface of the moon. Like many, like hundreds? Not hundreds, Dozens? but more than one. I see. More than one. Yeah. Okay. Um, and automated rovers, I assume? Yeah, well, uh, semi, I mean, there'll be, there'll be uh, commands coming from Earth, and mm-hmm. uh, we're looking at landing sites right now, Yeah. trying to come up with what, what do we think are appropriate landing sites uh, for the science. Right, and then they will be carrying scientific instruments. It won't just be rovers with uh, VR cameras to just to say, "Oh, here's uh, here's the Israeli flag on the moon." No, this is a serious uh, science objectives on this. I see. Now, what alternatives are there to rovers when you're talking about the moon? Yeah, because you can't really do helicopters yeah. per se on the moon without an atmosphere. You could do hoppers, right? Like little, yeah. little hoppers. Um, but the good thing about the moon, and, and you can speak to this maybe more, is that the communication time is much less. So your rovers don't have to go at 0.1 miles per hour right. like they do right. on Mars. Right. Yeah, and it's, by the way, I guess later in the talk we'll, we'll come to this, but it's the same thing when you're talking about humans on the surface of the moon. Having, having just a two to three second delay is uh is a way way more favorable situation than uh if you're on mars with uh what is it three to 25 minutes or something like that yeah uh, each way Mm -hmm. uh so um now from a medical standpoint if you got people on the moon and you have a very small delay um you can involve specialized surgeons on earth uh if someone needs, say, needs surgery or something like that, you, you can't really do that during a, an operation on Mars. Mm-hmm. But anyway, back to the un, the un, unpiloted. Uh, so, but that that's of course helpful too. That the um, the rover can go faster, and and but I, I I would imagine that the oh the 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 increase the the AI systems that 
they'll be able to go faster even on Mars mm-hmm. as, as that advances too. Yeah. Well, I think the Mars 2020 rover is still in the slow, slow category. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. in fact, I think it might go slower than previous rovers. Um, and then you have the, the uh, Scout, which is only going to fly like six yeah. times or something. Yeah. If I'm and you got the Roslyn, Roslyn Franklin rover also mm-hmm. with the, the ESA ExoMars mission. Uh, that that'll probably go pretty slowly too. Yes. But what's really cool about I I don't get so um, excited about oh this rover can go do look this it's got um, you know uh, anti lock brakes with all the mechanics of the rovers. Yeah, I'm more it's got hydraulics. The, it's the got instruments. Right. Yeah. What are the instruments actually? Yes. That it's actually carrying, and what what can it tell us about Mars? Right. But you maximize science by being mobile. Yeah. Right. That's why it's yes. important. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, true. And when it comes to the moon, if we want to go into a lot of um, a lot of uh, features in the caves and whatnot, and it's hard to do that with a rover. Uh, so. Right. So there is an idea of having a whole bunch of small rovers, and that way. If um, there's some redundancy, and if, if any of them don't work uh, or get stuck, you can um, you know, you've got the others. A problem with that is that the smaller you make the rovers, the smaller the wheels have to be, and mm-hmm. the bigger wheels help you get over bol- well, little boulder and things like that. Right. So it, that's Something... a problem too. So there's the idea of some kind of hoppers that kind of have say compressed gas, and then they can hop up for a while. Yeah, I asked when I had spaceflight historian Dr. David Fisher on. I don't know if you know him or have heard of him. He's a someone who his spaceflight. I heard of him from you. His spaceflight yeah. collection is insane, like literally insane. He's got so much stuff. But I, I, I talked to him about what he thinks the future of Martian exploration will look like, and he yeah. said something along the lines of: before we put humans on Mars, he wouldn't be surprised if we put humans on the moons of Mars, mm-hmm. and then they will control a fleet of rovers on the surface because going down into the gravity well of Mars and coming back is a very, very tough thing. But going yeah, to I a agree. moon of Mars yeah. isn't yeah. so bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we're going to have to kind of creep little by little over to Mars. So, And I think some of the, one of the reasons for the, the moon to Mars terminology is they, they want to let the public down easy about going to mars with people that now that we're really getting the hardware to go back into deep space and it's not it won't be just talk anymore Mm -hmm. it's actually putting your money where your mouth is nasa doesn't want to tell the public oh we're going to have a colony on mars in your lifetime right but presidents have no problem saying that president no they haven't had not not the how many have said this was it the so trump did trump actually say mars colony i'm not sure he did no i, I think I, one of the bushes both said it maybe and um it. i think obama highly touted martian exploration but i'm not sure if he ever said we would have um, but, but then he then he kind of uh, moved over to asteroid exploration. right exactly yeah. yeah well the obama era i think was a very sinusoidal um, wavy time for spaceflight funding. It seemed like our priorities yeah. had changed a lot in that time. I don't know why. I don't know yeah. the political reasons for it, but yes. yeah. Well, no, we've not ever had a president who actually cared about 
planetary science and lunar science. I cannot name even one. Right. Okay? Not even JFK. He wasn't interested in uh, uh, lunar science. Oh, let's let's study the moon and find what mm-hmm. it can tell us about the origins of life on Earth and about the early solar system. Even that's what it ended up telling us all about that, about the whole history of the inner planets. And it, it's it's amazing what we got. That's why we've got to go back from a scientific standpoint. One of the reasons is we, you know, it's it's just like a fossil sitting there mm-hmm. right next to Earth. It's right. just such an easy to get to, you know, comparatively compared with with the planets. Um, but, but Kennedy's mindset was not, not, I'm curious to learn about the moon. Yeah. So what all a whole geopolitical thing, if you could guess what space flight will look like in 2030, do you, what do you think space flight near or earth space flight and the moon will look like in 20, do you think we'll have basis? Do you think we'll have people going to and from, um, weekly daily? Do you think we will have, uh, orbital space stations? Do you think we'll have space hotels? I think we'll have um, we'll have an, an outpost working toward a base, toward an Antarctica situation base, mm-hmm. but much lower number of people than in Antarctica. But moving through the 2030s into the 2040s toward a higher a higher occupancy. So that will gradually be getting toward an Antarctica-like situation, where you don't have a colony yet, but you have uh, you have scientists who are going for several weeks or months, and then going back with their families at relative safety on Earth. Uh, and and that'll that'll include the research being done will include life science research, uh, so that will start to understand the partial gravity situation. And what it does to our yeah. physiology mm-hmm. and embryology and pregnancy, and uh, that that'll tell us really the feasibility of actually doing a colony on the moon and then eventually Mars and, and elsewhere. Because right now we don't even know if we can have a healthy pregnancy. Yeah, there was a startup. Wow, what was the name of it? I forget. But they wanted a woman to give birth in orbit. Do you know about this? No, but that that won't help. That won't help us. We, I know we, it, need, we need to know about <laughs> about it, the range between zero g and one g. So we know that the we know from we, we spent a ton of time in low Earth orbit. Yeah, too much time. You know, we spent uh-huh. we had fifty years of never leaving low Earth orbit, and as a result, though, we did a lot of a lot of uh, biology and medicine research in weightlessness. And we know that the gravity vector is important uh, for human pregnancy and for, we know, well, we know this indirectly because we study non-human pregnancy, but we know we know we need gravity. But because we haven't been back on the moon and we never, we never had anything, we never had a big centrifuge mm-hmm. on the space station that they were planning for a while, but we never got this nice big centrifuge where we could make lunar gravity and make Martian gravity. Uh, so as a result, we have no idea what the situation is in uh, 0.16 G and 0.38 G. So we don't know. We want to know really if we can, if we can have a colony 
Okay. Now, I, I, I suspect we'll be able to. Yes. But it's something we're going to have to test for, for decades, for a generation. Right. Now, you were featured in a documentary. What was the name of that documentary? I, uh, Oregon's it's, it's Middle Country? Yeah. Ah, yeah, that's, yes. uh, that's an Oregon public broadcasting TV documentary that aired uh, December 16th. I hope it'll move around to other to other PBS um, regions. Yes, um, it's available for free it on YouTube. On Oregon. It's ava- yeah. available for free. I watched it. It was, it was good. But one of the things that, that struck out to me is it was so interesting. Um, so the documentary, can you give a quick synopsis to someone who might want to watch it? Sure. So the main idea is that uh, in the 1960s and early 70s, um, the central part of Oregon was one of the main um, training sites for astronaut field geology, because there's just there's just um, a wealth of uh, geological um, sites in the area around Bend. So there's the Newberry Crater and Volcano. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it's 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 an area it's called Moon Country because they they thought that and it does um in a way act as a kind of analog environment for for areas on the moon where astronauts would be exploring mm-hmm. and they had to learn how to do the geological e- exploration yeah because uh, these are mostly test pilots not not geologists except for one of them yeah it's actually funny the one scientist was uh harrison schmidt is that right Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, they did this hilarious thing in this documentary, and I, I don't know if they did it on purpose, but but it it worked, where they said, and he was the only scientist on board, and then they proceeded to show like a sort of highlight reel of him falling over on the moon, and just looking <laughs> dumb, you know. But they all fell over. It's I know they that, did. That was just yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was just funny and how you know how that's they... a, we have time to talk about the spacesuits, because uh, that's another thing that really excites me about the twenty twenties about twenty twenty. Yeah. Okay, okay. So the 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 space flight suits, the suits that will be worn on the surface of the moon are are important because in that documentary there was a situation where one of the trainees fell over and cut their glove open on a rock, right? Yeah, I think it was Walter Cunningham. And that made them realize yeah. that wait a minute, we don't want this to happen on the moon, so they had to no. reinforce them. Um, yeah, and the gloves have always been an issue. So right. when they 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 have had a there have been a few times when they've debriefed Apollo lunar astronauts. Um, they, the last one was in uh, the early 2000s. They had they had a, a workshop where all the surviving Apollo lunar astronauts were were for I don't know how many times they'd done this before, but but asked about well what what should we do? We're getting ready to send people to the moon again. What do we need to do about X, Y, and Z? And when they were on the topic of the spacesuits, they always talked about the gloves. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them had their, their knuckles kind of torn up on those, especially the three J missions, the Apollo 15, 16, 17. Those are really the three missions that where yeah. they did the science. Uh-huh. You know, if you're, if you're going to pick the science missions, it was those missions. They're three days on the moon, each day with, with a long LEVA, lunar EVA, mm-hmm. um, and so over and over again, you got the, your knuckles rubbing against the inside of the gloves. So, but it, it, it's, this is like a major problem because mm-hmm. you're starting off with 
with a huge challenge. How are you supposed to put someone in what is essentially a big balloon? You're in a you're in a vacuum and you're pressurizing the suit. So this gets down to the basics of of suit design, which you always have a trade off. Like why right. do we why do we keep the pressure so low mm-hmm. in the suit? Um, and that's because if you if you if you pressurize the suit to 14.7 psi to have sea level pressure, you wouldn't be able to move at all, right? Right. Um, you just be like, uh, it would be like what um, Gene Cernan when he did his uh, Gemini flight, uh, it, when he when he tested out. He was, he was one of the first people to do a an EVA, a spacesuit, mm-hmm. and he compared it to a, a a rusty suit of armor. Yeah. This was before we really learned how to do spacewalks, and so it hadn't. It had advanced a lot by the time that astronauts were on the moon, mm-hmm. but uh, but still, I mean, it's it's very limited mobility. And the new one, the XCMU for the Artemis program, will have a lot better mobility, and the gloves are are supposed to be a lot better too. Yeah, in an ideal world, you'd have like a shrink wrap, right? You'd have like. The mm-hmm. tiniest piece of material ever covering you. So it just feels yeah. like your skin. But you have problems dealing with the cold. You have problems dealing with, um, right. in some it, cases, yeah. the heat. You have yeah. so many layers. And yeah, the, yeah, you need a cooling system too. Mm-hmm. Because you're, you're moving around and you're doing work. Yeah. And they're always, they're not going to be, they're not going to be doing, uh, EVAs in the lunar night. So you will have the sun on you. So mm-hmm. there is a heat thing as well. Yeah. You need, um, micrometeoroid protection. Um, I, I guess there's some amount of radiation protection, but it's not enough that if there were actually a solar particle event that you'd be safe on the surface. Right. You would not be. Yes. But you have time to game plan for that, right? Um, <clears throat> or maybe you don't. Yeah, well, I mean, you sort of shelters. Do. Yeah, you sort as of do. As long as they're near a shelter. Yes. So if they can get back to one. But the way that the Apollo missions were run, they would not have been able to. If they had been, say, out, especially on uh, those um, those J missions mm-hmm. where they get pretty far from the lunar module, uh, there was nowhere to go. I, I don't think gave too much protection either. But if you're near a cave, you can get in the cave. Right. Yeah. Okay. The now. command module had a lot more radiation protection. Mm-hmm. It was much thicker. Which, which raises issues when you talk about the commercial companies, which that's another thing that excites me about 2020 is we got um, commercial crew. Right. And, and you so have sort of a commercial got, space race happening. Yeah. Which is fun. Yeah. And it's not that I'm not one of these people who gets all excited about, oh, the commercial companies are competing, yada, yada, yada. But, but the idea that, first of all, it's um, uh, going to mean that for the first time in a decade, uh, NASA will be able to get astronauts back and forth to U.S. soil between U.S. soil right. and the space station, and that will happen um, this without, year, most depending likely, on right? on Roscosmos. Hmm? That will happen this Probably. year, most likely. Yes, we hope so. You know, there's been as you know, the Boeing Starliner had a setback yep. in December. You know, you know about that. Yep, it was a um, successful failure, though, right? So it, it was because they got back. If, if there had been astronauts aboard, and first of all, w- with a pilot in there, it's possible they might have recognized the problem early enough to, to, to fix the orbit mm-hmm. and actually would have been successful. But even if it hadn't, 
it means the crew would have been brought back to Earth safely. Right. And and even if you if your orbit is so messed up that you can't you can't have a, a reentry tra- trajectory to get you back to your one of your selected landing sites, you could still come back to a bad landing site and still get back and live to Earth. Yeah, I, I, I'm curious, um, since you brought up piloting, I've asked my last two guests about this. One was a, um, one is a, works in the control room for the ISS, and that episode will be released before this one, so people will have already heard it. And then the other one is the Dr. David Fisher episode, Spaceflight Historian, mm-hmm. and they had opposing opinions on something, and I'm curious to get yours. I asked them both about how SpaceX is moving in the direction of essentially unpiloted spaceflight yeah so almost everything is automated the person who worked in the iss uh, flight control room and was very ingrained in the op- spaceflight operations said that that's a good thing he likes that he likes that we're moving in that direction david fisher on the other hand said he hates that and he's he's much more um keen to liking boeing or some of these other organizations that still very much rely on piloting what, what do you think is but do you think it's better to let the machines do it do you think it's better to let the humans do it or some hybrid no well, I, I think I think the Boeing approach is better where you have um, a lot of automation and the whole thing could be flown automated without people uh, um, but that you could have a pilot and the pilot can the pilot can uh, can intervene. Right. So, as I understand the Vo- the Boeing craft, there there are ways for for the astronauts to uh, to to intervene and and change things and and do a certain amount of control. Whereas the Dragon is more like like the Russian uh, Soyuz craft, mm-hmm. where it's like there's not much for the pilots to do. Right. Well, you kind of expect that from SpaceX and. Moving yeah. in that direction of automation. Yeah, and I think even though you're not hearing this from astronauts, because they are so well-trained mm-hmm. in public relations that they never, ever will say anything negative about anything, but uh, particularly the pilot astronauts, the ones who, who did come up through the ranks as test pilots, as opposed to the, as opposed to the, uh, um, the scientists, astronauts who then, then also learn how to be a pilot, mm-hmm. not always, but a lot of them. So the ones who are test pilots who end up being the pilots of the mission, I mean, they, you know, they want to do flying. Yeah. They, they don't want to be, it, it, it's, they're not as, they're not going to be as, um, outspoken about it as in, uh, those old movies about the, or about the Mercury program where, where you have them saying, oh, I'm going to fly my, what movie was that? I think it was the right stuff. Like, just not wanting to be like they called it like a chimpanzee like mm-hmm. i don't want to be a chimpanzee who just sits in there and does nothing i want i want i want to stick control i want i want to be able to control my my pitch yaw and right. uh, roll and uh and and everything and they got that in gemini uh and it ended up being helpful to the program because then you could control your landing site that way mm-hmm. yeah so we're coming up on speaking of of failures in spaceflight, which recently we've had a few successful ones, but we've had a few. Um, yeah. We're coming up on the anniversary of the Columbia mission. Mm-hmm. By the time this episode is released, it will have passed. This will be released on February fourth, I think. 
So it will have passed. I think it happened on February 1st, right? Yes, it did. And yeah. you were associated with that mission, which is I wanted to get I wanted to talk to you about it. Can you explain yeah, was, what the I mission was? I was actually was? right at I was at Kennedy Space Center waiting for the landing on the runway um, when with all the, everyone was not sure what was happening because there was no sonic boom and right. um, then the clock went from negative time into positive time so clearly was not on schedule for the landing and everyone was like looking around not sure what to do was there so panic I was among, what, what was it like there was confusion hmm. uh i don't remember panic i remember just a lot of it's kind of surreal because you you're in a situation where uh you're one of a, of a whole bunch of people some of people have been in multiple landings mm -hmm. so and and you're sitting in different you're standing i don't know if you're sitting or standing in different places we were like in kind of bleachers or something yeah uh and i was in the area with researchers who had experiments uh on the on the shuttle so i i was part of a group that had some experiments in the space hab module uh, mm -hmm. that was being being carried on the sts 107 mission and uh and it was a few different biology experiments. One of them, by the way, was an experiment that I was doing um, with the Planetary Society in which we had two co-investigators who were students, and one of them was Israeli and one was Palestinian. And the idea was we had Israelis and Palestinians working mm -hmm. together with us on this experiment. And they got to be friends uh, in, in the course of the whole experiment and mission. And, uh, they, you know, I, they, I'm not sure if they're still in contact. I still hear a little bit from the Palestinian student, mm -hmm. uh, cause he's now, he got his PhD in molecular biology after that. Um, I think he's in Colorado or someplace. And, uh, so it was, it was a big publicity thing cause we were promoting the idea of that science unites people, that science, right. yeah. uh, the kind of Carl Sagan thing where, it makes all your other little geopolitical problems look kind of stupid. Mm -hmm. Like you get out in the States, you don't see any borders. Well, the same thing. I mean, uh, Israelis, Palestinians, they could be working together in the future on science. They, they shouldn't be fighting. Right. They should be in the future if the extremists from both sides will, will wake up and say mm -hmm. that neither of the, the, the other side is not going away. So right. Israel is not going away. There's going to be an Israel. Does this, now, is this, uh... Indefinitely. It's not fantasize about how, oh, this is the land of the Palestinians and uh, let's get the Israelis to leave. Okay, no, Israel is not only is it a, a country, but it's a pretty high-tech country that's contributing a great deal, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of new technology and medicine and, and a lot. So, And the same thing, Israelis have to learn Palestinians are not going away. They're, they're there. So the only logical situation, if you can't build more land into the Mediterranean, is find some way to coexist. And science is a really good way to make that happen because it, it gives you more of a perspective that we're all part of something a lot bigger. No, I agree. I think it's interesting to look at scientific collaborations and see the, yeah. the people working together from all different parts of the world. From countries, in some cases that are like on the brink of war, you have scientists working together. 
It's yeah. it's um it's fascinating. It's cool. I had um at my university I'm at now. There's a there was a Pakistani kid, Pakistani student, and a, and an Indian student that were ended mm-hmm. up being like best friends. Which if you know yeah. the if you know the geopolitics of that region is um not going to happen yeah. in that region. So no, it's it's incredibly interesting. Yeah, yeah. So what 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 ha- for people who don't know what happened on Colombia? What was the failure? What you know? Did, for people who have no idea, yeah. sort of an introduction. Yeah. So um, there might or be people listening who don't even remember any shuttle launches. Because the last one was in 2011. So uh, there was a uh, an external tank and were solid rocket boosters on the side and then the orbiter and the orbiter was attached to the to the tank so everything was kind of attached in parallel as opposed to having a stack that you have when you have a capsule on top of a booster system and what happened was that the tank was covered with kind of a a foam Mm -hmm. that um when it it got cold these uh if pieces of foam were to break off and they're cold, they, they can be like, like rocks. Yeah. And it hit the underside of the orbiter where you have special uh, uh, tiles that act as a heat shield mm-hmm. for reentry. And it actually knocks some, uh, some of those off and I think even some holes. So there was not a good underside of the vehicle that would be going through reentry. And... They didn't. The astronauts didn't know about that when uh, when they were ready to, to come home. Uh, so during the reentry, um, at some point there was a compromise of the of the uh, of the protection underneath, and then hot gases went in and you know, tore the whole thing up. And uh, I later learned that it was pretty bad, like what they were going through. Um, the, like the analysis of, mm-hmm. of the accident after they were being tossed around and whatnot uh, yeah. in there, you know, pretty, pretty terrible uh, how, how the whole thing ended. And, and set, was it seven astronauts that died? Yeah. And it, it, it broke up over, over Texas. I see. Uh, so it was on its way to make a landing in Florida and debris came, well, a lot of the debris came down in North Texas in that, that area. Mm-hmm. Alongside Columbia, the anniversary of Apollo 13 will probably happen by the time we have our next discussion. It's in April, yeah. right? Hey, but before you get on to that topic, just, yeah. just since you were talking about the whole idea of uh, peace and cooperation between countries, and we had the Israeli-Palestinian experiment on that flight, which, by the way, was also carrying the first Israeli astronaut, uh, Ilan Ramon, was on that flight. Um so then we had, and with that we had a Palestinian working with us along with an Israeli student, and also what's happening this year is it's the first time that an Arab country is sending a probe to Mars mm-hmm. in 2020. That's the Hope mission, uh, which is a, which is a Mars orbiter. In fact, it's the first time an Arab country is sending anything beyond Earth orbit. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah it's um, it seems like the world is getting involved in spaceflight, which is good. If yeah. only we could. Yeah. cooperate and put our resources together for the greater good yeah um, yeah yeah maybe if, if iran gets interested in exploration you know that that wouldn't hurt either right no i 100 percent agree now as you know david and you are too i am very interested in 
why people tend to believe the bullshit they believe. Okay. Why is it a lot of bullshit? Why is it that people are fascinated or, or, you know, invested in ideas that are just false and can be proven false very easily. And of those, many of them, uh, tend to be superstitious in some way. And so I wanted to talk about Apollo 13 because I don't know much about the Apollo mission. I don't know much about the, um, the missions rather. I don't know much about that era of space flight. I only know what I can read. But reading doesn't necessarily um, always give you the the correct public response to something, right? And so if I talk yeah. to David Fisher, he can tell me that Apollo 13 was this weird event in history where people were not wanting to send it because of the number 13. How did the public and media react to Apollo 13? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's a, it depends what you mean before the accident and then after the accident. Before the accident. Home. How do so we react before? Before the accident, you, it, it's just before the accident, there was an unbelievable amount of attention to the fact that it was the number 13 right. <laughs> for the mission, uh, which boggles my mind. But I, I learned about the history of when I was r- writing my book, Moon, an illustrated history. Mm-hmm. Uh Available any place uh, <laughs> where books are sold. So I I learned that uh, there was the media actually focused on this to an extent. Um, instead of focusing on the fact that they were planning to visit the Framaro region of the moon, which uh, scientifically that, that was uh, interesting compared with given that they, the first two missions, Apollo 11 and 12, had gone to Mari regions, the lowland right. regions, and they were going to be exploring a totally different part of the moon, um, a highland region that was built up after impact, an impact event, mm-hmm. had carved out the Embryan Basin and catapulting all this material up and then down to form the Framaro formation. So they would actually be able to sample um, materials that were older and... Mm-hmm. Getting getting more to the beginning of the moon than than what they had been able to sample to that point, uh, so it was going to be a really good mission scientifically. And instead of focusing on that, the media were like, "Oh, going to space is routine. Hey, we had eleven, we had twelve. We showed that we can do it. We 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 beat we beat the Russians." Mm-hmm. Um, but what am I going to talk about with this next mission? And all they could come up with was. Uh, isn't that bad luck? Are you worried of asking the astronauts? Are you worried uh, about going at an Apollo 13? The astronauts were basically like joking. Yeah. Either they were, no, I'm not worried, or they're just, you know, making jokes. Were people suggesting thought, we skip 13? I don't know if anyone was suggesting that, but um, there were, I think even today, there are certain airlines that don't have a row 13. Really? I, I remember once or twice walking, like looking for my <clears throat> seat and just happened to notice, hey, it goes from, from 12 to 14. What is, what's, what is this? That's lunacy. Uh, I don't remember which airline. But in the 60s, um, I remember an episode of I Dream of Jeannie where there was a hotel and, and – Jeannie blinked a 13th floor onto there because they were like they, she needed rooms mm-hmm. for 
for for the NASA people, and yeah. they heard the hotel was all booked up, and all of a sudden, it's one of those things that drove Dr. Bellows crazy about, there, there is a 13th floor here, but the hotel, there was that, that type. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know, maybe that was an indication of that, in that era, um, there were no, there were hotels that didn't have a 13th floor. Um, I know. I don't remember in my, I don't ever remember staying in a hotel that didn't have a 13th floor, but yeah, I don't maybe generally, I just don't notice things like I don't that. generally I count don't, the, the floor, so I don't know. Yeah. That's, yeah. Although I do know this, this is an interesting tidbit about Donald Trump that you will completely understand once I say it to you. Um, in a lot of his hotels and buildings, he, he doesn't put like a large number of middle floors in. So, as an example, he'll build a building and it'll be 40 stories tall, but he won't name any of the floors 13 through like 25. And so that way on the elevator button, it looks like it goes to floor 52 or something. Um, and so the building gives the illusion of being taller than it is. That's an interesting thing. That might be a con. That might mean- it, just sound, it, it just sounds like just a just more Trump Michigas. That might not just be a Donald Trump thing. That might be anyone who builds a building and just wants to. I don't know. Um, anyhow, yeah, the, don't know. the mission ended being a failure, Apollo 13. A failure and not – no one – I don't think anyone died, right? But Nobody they, died. They didn't get to yeah, the moon. No, actually they called it a, a successful failure because right. it, it was uh, – um, well, first, the idea of 13, first of all, was that NASA didn't have any of that. Now, now – there are superstitions in the space program. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot what they are, but they're, they're um, I don't know, they're all kinds of, you can look this up, um, things about someone has to wear a certain type of shirt and a certain type of mission, like in mission control, they have these, yeah. they're more like traditions no, no, no. superstitions. It's, it's interesting like you really bring this up it, because my episode that I'll be releasing before this one, we the whole episode is about that. I interview someone from the NASA ISS mission control and we talk about Uh the Russian rituals and superstitions and the American rituals and superstitions. Yeah. For our whole Russians had some some ritual about like peeing on a tire. Yep, you you pee on a tire. Before a mission. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So the Russians have superstitions, but but NASA it's public image at least. Mm -hmm. The the traditional superstitions it would NASA made fun of those right in the sixties. So the Triskaidekaphobia, fear of the number thirteen. NASA was like, "Come on, grow up. We're sending people to the moon, and we still got people scared of black mm-hmm. cats." And and uh, I mean, I think the next step for NASA was going to be sending a black cat to the moon on Halloween. Because uh, what what NASA did, and a lot of this came from Gene Kranz, the flight director for Apollo 13, um, on purpose, he scheduled the launch for 13.30 hours, so 1.13 p.m. Mm-hmm. in civilian time. 13.13, just to rub that in the face of the of the, the reporters. Yeah. Who well, joke's on him because it and, failed. And, well, <laughs> depends on your perspective. <laughs> you know, you, the, the, it, my perspective is, it was the luckiest mission ever because there were a hundred different ways for the astronauts to get killed True. after that accident. And they, they, uh, they, they got home 
uh, unscathed right. by the skin of their teeth. Yep. And there was like, you know, near death after near death. And they, they kept they kept surviving. They could have died from the CO2 levels getting too high. They found a way around that. They could have died from not getting the burn right that they had to control manually a mm-hmm. few times to get back on course to Earth. Don't don't say that uh, Apollo 13 and the number 13 was unlucky. From my perspective, is lucky. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. I. It, yeah. It's all about perspective. Now. Yeah. These this superstition is a broader example of as we put it before bullshit, right? Yeah. And there's yeah, yeah. tons of bullshit going around constantly. And one of the interesting things to me as I I try to study science denialism because it's important for me as an educator to understand why people believe bullshit versus actual shit. Um why do people hold on to their beliefs even in the face of new evidence? Why? I try to understand that. And you can look at polls of science denialism, science belief in the U.S. And what you find is that 87% of adults claim to have faith in scientists to be acting in the best interest of the public. Okay? That's incredibly interesting. 87 that's a really high number in my book. Okay? That means if you go out and find 100 people, statistically only 13 of them should not trust scientists. That's still too high, but it's pretty good, right? 87 people are going to trust you. But... In the U.S., 42% of people believe God created humans in their present form in the last 10,000 years. Okay, that's a big chunk of people, 42%. Then, only 27% of people believe scientists agree that climate change is a human caused. All right? So, it seems like, for some reason, we have a societal belief that scientists are trustworthy. But on individual topics, they disagree. Another one is that only 84% of people think vaccines are extremely important. That's a problem. You know, you don't want 16% of people thinking vaccines aren't very useful. Uh, you can speak to that. 16% is probably much too high. So, why? Yeah, especially if, if it's parents of children is, is too high. Because we need, you need to have like a 95% um, yeah. uh, vac- vaccination compliance in a public school system in order to keep everybody protected. Yeah, in the year 2001, that number was 94% of people believed that vaccines yeah. were yeah. extremely important. So the number is actually going down. Do you notice that? Well, I, I mean, I'm not following the numbers that closely, but I know that there's a lot of concern about that yeah. uh, among pediatricians especially. Yeah, so... so wh- you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of bullshit in medicine. You know right. that, yes, right? Of like, course. And there's a lot of um, the the government itself has a uh, um, puts money into something called the the Institute for Integrative Medicine. And so when you hear the term integrative medicine, just know that that's bullshit. All that that is is an excuse to um, to to fund and to um, to take seriously to to get respect mm-hmm. putting air quotes to um to to proponents of so-called alternative health uh and they get they get shielded by saying that it's integrative saying that oh well we're gonna integrate this with with standard medicine um so whether it's somebody uh you know copying Putting, doing cupping on on your yeah, back uh-huh. and giving you sores on your back to supposedly 
heal you from whatever um, and getting your insurance to pay for that uh, to um, um, anything else, you know, whether, uh, um, you know, injecting somebody with uh, intravenous vitamin C uh, to, to cure cancer or something. I mean, there's, there's a range of, of dangers. So um, you have to look at pseudoscience in, in terms of different categories. So you have the categories which are a matter of life and death. They mm-hmm. can kill you, like alternative medicine. That, that's, that's potentially deadly, um, like naturopaths, yeah, homeopaths. These are potentially deadly um, um, categories of pseudoscience because they can convince people to do the wrong thing medically um or at worst just not 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 to go to the right kind of doctor so either either you're going to a naturopath and you're getting a treatment that that could kill you Mm -hmm. or in in a much higher number of cases you're going to a naturopath and just getting ineffective treatments giving you a false sense of security, and then you're not going to go and, say, get your pap smear or right. something. So, okay, David, uh, I yeah. task you with this. Top three top three pseudoscientific bullshit beliefs that annoy you the most. Flat Earth well, is my number one, I think. <laughs> so I haven't had direct contact with the Flat Earth people, but I just recently had, a, uh, I guess, a contact with the, the creationist people. So I should probably start with that. Okay. I don't know if you saw that. I didn't. But, so I, I had this article um, in on the Genetic Literacy Project, which is a great, uh, um, I guess, educational site. Yeah. Uh, GLP. And it actually is an article I wrote a couple of years ago, and then they, they republished it mm-hmm. recently. And the, the idea was, how do you teach evolution to creationist students? Yeah. Because the percentages you're talking about is, uh, I, I'm pretty shocked here it's that high, like 42% or whatever. But there is a, it's well known that there's a high number of, um, of creationism-believing students on college campuses. Yeah. But that doesn't actually, that's not actually backed up by religious leaders, you know. So when you say 42% of the people... Those are the followers of religion, but when you right. actually look at the um, the you know, leaders of of religions, mm-hmm. they're not they're not as much against evolution, and they're not they they're not denying evolution um, in some of the you know the big religious organizations like the Catholic Church, and um, and like the so so the Pope, the current I mean, maybe in the past the Catholic Church denied evolution, but the current Pope. Has stated that you know that this is science. This is what science tells us. It's part of biology. He's, right. He embraces evolution. Uh-huh. So, and the same goes for the Archbishop of Canterbury. So we got major, major uh, segments of religious societies whose leaders are not anti-evolution. Mm-hmm. Not like the people in the. You know, Inherit the Wind, the movie yeah. taking place in the 1920s with Spencer Tracy. Great movie. You got to see it if you haven't seen it. Fantastic. But there's this group, um, this creationist group run by that guy who's got the museum in, in Kentucky that's got Noah's Ark in the museum. 
and he saw this article that I wrote. Um, and and the, 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 the whole theme of the article was how to teach. It's like kind of a strategic article. Yeah. Basically, I, I interviewed people. I got, I got uh, a colleague of mine who's at City College mm-hmm. who I've worked with on biology educational materials, Nathan Lentz, who's a professor of biology at John Jay College, which is part of City University in New York. Um, he gave his uh, input on, on how to teach evolution. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and also Arizona State has a very big focus on this. This is how we do it. I mean, they've held special workshops and meetings for, for biology professors mm-hmm. and teachers uh, and, and for high school biology teachers how you approach this. So you got to explain what the scientific theory actually is and addressing some of the misconceptions that traditionally creationists have always had, like always saying that, Oh, evolution is only a theory when we know, well, a theory to us, to you and, and to me, to you and me in, in science, we, um, you know, to us, a theory conveys a very high level of certainty, right? Uh, we, ha- we haven't been able to disprove it, so it's still a theory. And so there were things like this in the article. And then there was this the creation something or other, but that runs that museum. And it's run by Ken Hom, the guy who Bill Nye debated yeah. uh, about evolution. And they were all of a sudden, they're saying that, oh, we never said that uh, we say that evolution is only a theory. And we never said this. And then all of a sudden, they're they're now saying that it's only our followers who get this wrong. So what they're doing is they're giving advice to their followers. Don't um, when you're when you're confronted with evolutionists, don't uh, don't say that evolution is only a theory, right. because it's not a theory. Uh, because in there, they're just they just change their whole. I mean, nobody has evolved more than the creationists. So they've just been kind of pushed into a corner. Uh, they said that, and then they said that. Um, um, another of my key points in the article was that, which I got both from Arizona State and from, and from, uh, Professor Lentz mm-hmm. is, um, you bring up, the, this is very helpful when you're teaching students who are religious, bring up the fact that the odds are that their own religious leaders are probably perfectly okay with evolution. So, but, but the, um, the guy in the blog, Mr. Hom, and uh, and and the the video on that, and they were on there discussing it. They're like, "Oh, another thing, another thing that 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 this uh, evolutionist uh, organization said is that um, you should point out that they're religious leaders who believe in evolution." They're like, "But that's irrelevant," uh, and I'm just thinking. Okay, so that's irrelevant. Okay, so what you, people you're, and they call them syncretists. These are like, oh, these are people who merge mm-hmm. Christianity with like evolution. They're syncretists, and don't pay attention to those people. They're irrelevant, and you should be wary of any religious institution that lets people teach evolution because uh, it's irrelevant that religious leaders accept evolution. So basically, they're saying that people like the Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury should be irrelevant to uh, Christian students thinking about mm-hmm. what they should think about evolution. I mean, come on. So, so clearly, I mean, this, this is like 
catering to a very, very extremist element of of the religious community as a whole. Right. So I don't think yeah. that's forty two percent. It's gotta be a lot less than that. Yeah, I, I'm not well, I think I think the forty two percent is I think when they break it down by age, what they find mm-hmm. is that younger people tend not to believe in it as much as older people. Um and mm, this is actually that's, that's scary. <laughs> this is a common thing actually I think in most pseudoscience forms oh, wait, is that wait wait you're saying they don't believe in evolution or they don't believe in religion religion in the creationism oh, okay. yeah well then that so the younger people are moving well that's what's scaring them then that's what they um they don't like to see that we are talking about how to educate right uh, the kids because mm-hmm. that's like oh you know then yes. they're brainwashing our youth right yeah it's weird so okay that's number one for you what are your other two Biggest bullshit pseudoscience fields yeah. of study. Yeah, well, there's you can't you can't leave out the anti-GMO movement because there's nothing more bullshit than that. I mean, that's just like such. First of all, the terminology is so stupid. Uh, GMO. What does that even mean? You know, everything's a GMO, right? Um, and it's the only the only way that anyone could be. Um, um, pushed into that where the where as a consumer you don't want to buy something that's a gmo is if you really very ignorant about biochemistry and about agriculture which and it's it's such a bizarre type of uh of of pseudoscience because it's a pseudoscience that attracts very wealthy people who shop in 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 some of the most expensive food stores which use these uh, these you know types of alarmist um, labels like oh mm-hmm. non GMO yeah I got yada, yada, yada and you got like and they're pushing it on you and I, I find it the most annoying when it's actually like you're in Costco or someplace and yep. where they have like food samples uh-huh. where like you want to try this and like okay free food and like one of the first things is saying and it's non GMO. And, you know, I just yeah. can't, I can't put up with that. I'm like, I, I lose it at that point. You'll, like, you'll be happy to know. It's like you're insulting me by thinking that I would want a non-GMO project. You're, <laughs> you're telling me that I'm stupid. You'll be you're happy to know that, that when I was 16. I don't know 16, what a molecule is. I don't. <laughs> when I was 16, yeah. 17, 18, maybe, maybe even 19, I was duped by the anti-GMOs. I'd go into uh, Giant. I'd go into the aisle that they sold all the organic stuff. I'll I'll drink uh-huh. six gallons of organic orange juice and think it was good for me when I was sixteen. <laughs> it doesn't matter yeah. if it's seven kilograms of sugar. I'll drink it all. Right, right. Oh, the sugar is this is this is this kind of gets into the uh, the whole the label of uh, no um, high fructose corn syrup. So this is another bullshit thing, okay? Because it's not bullshit that fructose is bad for you, mm-hmm. okay? Because so fructose has is uh, among all the monosaccharides so so fructose is is the um um in, in terms of uh of um stimulating an insulin response so that you get an insulin spike um it's bad to have it's better to have any other kind of sugar other than fructose but the problem is <laughs> that what's the alternative to the high fructose corn syrup in the types of food products that usually have this label on them, like 
you know, like uh, juices and whatnot. Yeah. The, 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 the high fructose corn syrup they'd be using is number 42, which means a 42% fructose. So it's enhanced with mm-hmm. extra fructose. So it would have higher, higher amount of fructose than regular pure corn syrup would have, and it ends up with 42%. So then they say on there, no high fructose corn syrup, and then you look at the ingredient, it's like organic cane sugar. Well, right. cane sugar is what I don't care whether it's organic or not, because organic's a bullshit word also. So uh, cane sugar that you're using as a substitute yeah. instead of the um, so-called a natural alternative to high fructose corn syrup, that's sucrose, which means it's glucose and fructose right, yeah it's a it's a uh-huh. disaccharide so it's 50 50 so that's 50 percent fructose that you're having instead of the 42 percent fructose for your high fructose corn syrup and it actually ends up being uh more because the sucrose um has less of the sweet taste so they use more of it so yeah. you're getting more sugar and you're getting more fructose in the products that advertise themselves as having no high fructose corn syrup totally totally stupid don't fall for that but it's hard not to it's hard to buy anything without that anymore and then in the broader picture that brings up the whole organic thing so basically really bad for the environment um we have a problem with climate change and we um don't want to use a smaller a bigger amount of land to grow less food that gives you a higher carbon footprint Right. So those who reject the technologies, uh, like the transgenic products and the CRISPR engineered products and all other types of engineered products that will allow you to grow more food on less land with less of a carbon footprint, they're a bunch of hypocrites because they're not, you know, they're they're, they're basically they're they're harming the environment, right? Um, causing us to pollute more. Mm-hmm. My Why favorite. Why do you want to do that? My right? favorite diet term is natural. Like you'll buy a oh, you'll buy a fucking hot yeah. pocket and it'll say all natural. Like, what does yeah. that mean? What does all natural mean? Yeah. Everything is nature. Everything's part of nature. Yeah. Just this whole idea of being natural. They'll sell a couple pebbles. Such... Sell a couple pebbles in a in a package and call it all natural? Yeah. Organic? Yeah, and everything's got a, a label on the front. So uh, the, only, the only label that actually is required by law to be true is that rectangle on the back with the nutritional information. Anything outside that rectangle on the back, they can lie like crazy. They yeah. can write whatever they want. But aren't the dietary and, and guidelines can... in that rectangle also pretty flawed? Well, that's like the percentage. Totally yeah, yeah. A, yeah, that that's another issue. With the, they're, they're constantly changing what the percentage are, but at least that's based on consensus of professionals who, right. you know, at, at some, it might be behind the times, but it's based on the idea that this is, this is, it's co- like the amount of sodium that it shows you, it has to be correct by law. If, if, if a portion mm-hmm. of the food is like 600 milligrams sodium, they got to tell you that. Right. You know, I see. The same thing for the amount of protein, the amount of saturated fat. And, you know, these things like saturated fat, sodium, these have actual real health implications. Yeah. GMO is an arbitrary category and it has no health implications except for the fact that with certain GMO, if you look at the rationale of how they are made, then it seems to be that the more engineered product is safer in many cases. So I'll give you an example. The, um, 
the genetically engineered potato, the simplot potato, is engineered so that if you heat it, if you heat it up, is the reason they do this is so it doesn't get bruised and look mm-hmm. ugly, and then you know you end up throwing away a lot of potatoes. But a side benefit is that with the so-called GMO potato, when you heat it up to high temperature, as when you fry it, you don't create acrylamide, which is a carcinogen. And if anyone's worried about these foods producing cancer, um, it's always the anti-GMO people like, oh, it's going to give you cancer because we don't yeah. understand GMO. Well, your, your non-GMO alternative is the one that creates mm-hmm. the, the acrylamide when you heat it up. And, and I can give you a ton of other examples like that. I mean, the, uh, the, the corn, the BT corn, mm-hmm. I mean, you get so much more of the BT insecticide uh, in, before, well, I'll say in the past, so where did BT come from? It's a, it's a bacterial species. Um, BT it stands for for it. Um, it. It's called Bacillus thuringiensis, and that's where you get BT. Mm-hmm. And organic, so-called organic farmers, 30, 40 years ago, they used to spray tons and tons of this shit yeah. onto their crops because onto the corn especially – because there was a little kind of invertebrate, a little worm-like creature that would crawl into the kernel and just totally destroy it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it turned out that there was a, um, um, a biochemist at Monsanto who, in the early 1980s, he figured out this was like a really difficult thing to do to get a uh, bacterial gene into a eukaryote. Because the, the gene, the eukaryotic um, genome is much, much more complex than material uh, genome. Very, the chromosomes are more complicated. It's a challenge, and it was a technological milestone to be able to do this. And what they were able to do is create something where they could, they could create the same insecticide that the BT bacteria creates, but have the plant produce it itself and produce it inside the kernel where it has a, a much bigger effect on on the invertebrate that's eating through it. And those crops survive. And at the end, you get so much less of the Bt uh, insecticide in it than you got on what you had before. But okay, what so do you get from, yeah. yeah. So all of these concepts, though, they seem to stem, the reason people tend to believe them is because they seem to stem from what I perceive to be not a distrust in science, I don't think, but a distrust in the way we come to conclusions. So a distrust in the scientific method in general. Um, and it seems to be localized to like your group of influence, right? So like the one thing you notice or notice is that uh, anti-evolutionary people, creationist people tend to um, be older. They tend to be churchgoers and they tend to be aligned with the Republican Party. You have mm-hmm. people, yeah. you have anti-vax people. They tend to be um, incredibly active on the internet and on online forums where medicine is is doubted. Um, and they tend to be also more inclined to partake in alternative medicine, the types of things you were talking about earlier. Uh, probably the same women housewife. I just picture her to be a housewife all the time. I don't know why. Um, maybe that's sexist of me. But it, I, it might be a little sexist. Yeah, but it's <laughs> but fine. There, I'm, I'm in a male anti-vaxxer. He's in the park. Um, was he a housewife? writing a blog post about it. I don't think so. Okay. But he just kind of approached me and it it was annoying. And um, 
he was telling me about, oh, did you hear about the uh, the AI and the vaccines? That's how he started the conversation. Mm. He heard something about artificial yep. intelligence and vaccines. I'm sure what he heard was a story about how they're using artificial intelligence to to develop vaccines that work better and right. develop the vaccines quicker. But he thought that the government is trying to inject you with AI to somehow yeah. take over your mind. Add this. Like this that. is a good. This is a good thing, David. I'm glad and you brought it up. And by the way, he was totally, totally covered from head to toe in tattoos. Yep, and he's wearing okay. tie dye. So if you're worried sure. about, yeah, you know, worried about, uh, talk about heavy metals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you bring up something that um, I'll add to my list of things that annoys the shit out of me, which is the word yeah. artificial intelligence, because we there's no such thing. What even is artificial intelligence? No one can even tell you. OK, what is it? Is it a robot yeah. that can think for itself? Well, we're, we're decades away from coming up with that. Is it a robot yeah. that can do things on its own? Well, we're decades away from coming up with that. You know, what What do you think artificial intelligence for most people? They think. That artificial intelligence is like fitting a, a, a curve to a series of data points, which is like yeah, the yeah. type of mathematics that's been around since 1940. Um, and yeah. people are just getting around to actually using it on actual data now, machine learning type stuff. So, no, mm -hmm. the word artificial intelligence is bullshit to begin with. You know, I just want to ask you because you, you are in what I perceive to be the two main fields of misinformation in all of science, which is – Sort of like astronomy and physics, which I also put into the – I put climate change into that basket because I think that it is a lot of microphysics that goes into understanding climate change. Um, and also medicine, those two fields. What do you think the yeah. solution is? Where, where do you think – how do you think oh, – no, okay, number one, do you even think it's a problem? Because it doesn't seem to be affecting scientific advancement in any way. It doesn't seem to be affecting our, our jobs. It doesn't seem to be affecting progress. It just seems to be localized to vocal people on the internet, at least from where I'm from. Now, of course, when you're talking about vaccines, you're talking about kids that are actually being hurt in schools. It's a big deal, and it's happening, and you see it happening in places like New York City, in places like Brooklyn. You see it happening where I'm at, where kids are getting measles because their classmates aren't vaccinated. So you do see some real-world effects, but at large, you don't see the types of effects you would expect to see based on the number of vocal idiots that you see on Twitter. So do you think it's a problem? And if you yeah. think it's a problem, how do we fix it? Hmm. Well, it's a, it's a, whew, that's, that's a, that's a whole lot. I mean, I think in a certain way where we're, we've had a certain amount of success with vaccines because we, we still, it's alarming that the opinions are going down, but I mean, um, Pretty much across the board in pediatrics, the pediatricians are all very good about um, explaining the parents. This is what you know why mm -hmm. you got to get your child vaccinated, um, and it, it it is a little more like the internet gives you the impression that this is a bigger movement than it is. Right. I, I think the anti-GMO movement is more pervasive because you have you. When's the last time you went to a supermarket and we're not confronted with all this stupid non-gmo labels uh, it's all over the place it's oh like all the time even, yeah yeah i'm pretty you sure i buy organic buy eggs i'm pretty sure i buy organic eggs but i don't think that's by choice i think that's like all i can find is organic eggs it is like that i mean i um 
when I go to Trader Joe's, I, I, I've typically bought the cheapest eggs, just the regular uh, grade double A eggs. And now they recently switched it so that, uh, the cheapest ones you can get are the, the, mm. uh, the cage fruit. No, I do know so, why. So you I can buy... feel good. Like yeah. before, you know, those chickens were really, you know, giving them a much nicer life. I, I do know why I buy organic eggs now. It's my wife's fault, and it's not because of any reason you suspect. It's because they put the non-organic eggs in a styrofoam container, oh. and she doesn't want to buy the styrofoam, and they put the organic eggs in a cardboard container, which we can then recycle. That's why. Figured okay, it out. I once saw a brand of eggs where it was the exact opposite. Where the uh, Oh, really? The um, Yeah, the so-called the high-end ones were, were in the styrofoam. Mm. And then that was a target, I think. And I found the regular yeah. ones were in the regular card. Add that to the list of things that pisses me off, David. People put styrofoam in the recycling bin at my apartment building. And nothing annoys me more. I always have to take it out and throw it away. Yeah. It, it annoys me. Anyhow, um, what, what do you, how do you think that, where do you think the solution lies? Do you think it's in education? Do you think it's, where, where do you think it is? Well, I think education, you know, and that includes both education in the classroom, which that's pretty bad. Yeah. Science education in in, in um, you know elementary middle school horrible. We need to fix that. Yes, because that's where it all starts. I mean, right. When you think about all the think about all the different um, anti science movements, mm -hmm. and what what are what would you say are the educational deficiencies underlying all that? It seems to me there's a lot of uh, chemistry and physics that people are just not getting at even the basic level yeah um especially chemistry i mean chemistry uh if you look at everything from vaccines to the the anti-gmo mm -hmm. um you know to everything all kinds of things in health if you don't understand chemistry you're in a lot of trouble yeah. homeopathy do you know what homeopathy is like what i know broadly means? what it is but you can describe it so, yeah, so homeopathy is totally the, the, the beliefs underlying homeopathy amount to complete denial of the basic concepts of chemistry that you learn in ninth grade or 10th grade, whenever you, you know, mm -hmm. start to do your first comprehensive course in chemistry, just everything, atomic yeah. theory, just the whole thing. It's just throwing it out the window. Uh, because of some belief that it's the, the idea of homeopathy, just for background for the viewers, is that if there's a tiny amount, if there's a, a substance that causes certain symptoms mm -hmm. uh, that are part of your disease process, then you want to you want to give that substance and give very tiny amounts of it. Right. And the one that I've heard from people describing homeopathy is like um, if you got allergies so you want to give like little bits of compounds that come from onions because onions make your eyes tear. I mean, is that the oh, worst bullshit you've ever heard? Yes. As if like tearing is the underlying problem in allergies. I thought you were going to say that this, I thought you were going to say homeopathy is giving the allergen, like small doses of the allergen to the person with the allergy. Cause I was going to say, I thought that like you're, I thought that worked and then I was going to be disappointed. Um, well, see, they don't make, they're so unscientific that they don't make much of a distinction between symptoms and underlying conditions. Right. So yeah. a lot of it's very, very hypocritical. I mean, there's so much hypocrisy in the, in the, in the alternative health movement. It's like they, um, 
they're constantly accusing real doctors of not being holistic and yeah. nothing could be further from the truth they're always like oh you know you guys don't want to do prevention well wait a minute Vac- i can't think of anything better than vaccines that is you know advanced preventive medicine yeah um and, and no that's that's what they don't want that's what they end up doing mm-hmm. david warm flash we got to wrap this up we'll plug your book ladies and gentlemen before you leave please i'll say it again Rate the show five stars wherever you listened. Tell me if you enjoyed it. Leave a comment. What did you think? Do you like David Warren Flash's ideas? Do you think he's wrong on some things? Do you think I'm right? Do you think I'm wrong? Do you think everyone's wrong? Do you think space is fake? What do you think? Let me know. Send me an email. Send me a message. Comment. Whatever you got to do. Leave a review. Tell me I suck. Tell me I'm great. Tell me I'm wonderful. Tell me um, some adjective that you can create in your head. I don't care what it is. Do you hate the Kansas City Chiefs? Yes, you do. You do hate them. Do you hate the Philadelphia Eagles? You do. Do you hate the city of Philadelphia? You do. Do you hope that Philadelphia changes its name to any other name and then stops being Philadelphia and then everyone moves out and then it becomes a ghost town and then no one lives there and then Pennsylvania gets rid of it and then we just give it away to Canada and then it's like a little satellite campus a couple hundred miles away from Canada where Canadians can come to spend time in a disgusting vagrant city? You do. You do hope that, and I hope that too, okay? Now, of course, I'm kidding, okay? One time, uh, the episode's technically over, and I was just telling you to rate and review my shit, but I'll tell you a quick story. One time, I did an intro for a podcast. This was my third podcast ever, and I did it, or maybe it was number four, but anyway, I did an intro, right? I did an intro um, where I had a guy on, and in the intro, I said something similar to what I just said. I was like, Philadelphia's a shitty city. It sucks, blah, 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 whatever. And the dude refused to allow me to upload it. Well, I, he couldn't refuse to allow me to upload I already uploaded it. But he had his people reach out to me and were like, you got to take the episode down right now because you said mean things about Philadelphia. And at the time, I didn't even say any curses. Like, I didn't even say any of that shit because... I was like, oh, on edge. I was like, oh my god, I, I can't be myself because if I miss it myself, people won't want to come on the show and then I can't, I can't do it. But here's the thing. If you get mad about me saying that about Philadelphia and you are such a bitch that you won't let me upload it, and I don't mean, I mean bitch in a good way. If you're such a bitch that you don't want me making up what I think is a very apparent joke about Philadelphia and you don't want that uploaded because you think it's going to hurt you in some way, that is either very very bad and you live in an environment where you are too afraid of the people around you or it's a statement about how society is and you think that somehow you're going to be canceled or you're going to be shut down because you associated with someone that made a joke about the city of philadelphia that's insanity that's nuts but nevertheless fourth episode ever so i did it i removed the goddamn thing and then the dude who i did it for still refused to share my shit so it's not I, I didn't even get any benefit out of doing it other than you know trying to help the dude out he was ninety thousand years old so i don't know like i i don't know i don't know man i can only imagine he didn't care but i imagine some person probably got in his ear and was like hey guy you can't have him say bad stuff about philadelphia on the show because then no one's gonna like you anymore who cares anyway that's a story i can't believe that happened to me I can't believe that someone is so afraid, so afraid of a, such a simple, stupid joke that was so clearly a joke. Sometimes when I joke, I tend to speak with like conviction, like I'm being serious. 
But I think after you listen to like two episodes, then you understand that. And you're like, oh, when Brendan speaks in this voice where you think he's being serious, he's actually just kidding. And if you don't realize that, then I don't know, go to have more brains. Go somewhere where they have brain transplants and get more brains implanted into your skull. If you don't see how that's a joke. If you don't see how what I just said is a joke, then I need you to take your brains and put new ones in. I need you to take them and put new ones in your in your skull because you can't be that stupid. And that's how I end the episode. Please go enter to win David Warmflash's book. You can do it by a number of ways. Number one, be on my mailing list. Number two, things I didn't say at the beginning of the episode, but the normal ones. Be a Patreon subscriber, blah, blah, blah. Retweet the tweets, like the tweets, share the tweets, all the good stuff. Okay, so go do that. Please, you're going to help the show grow. We're going to grow together. January had the most downloads out of any month we've ever had. I appreciate you all listening to the show. We're going. I said it before, man. We're going to the top 2020. 2020 at the top. And and I have 2020 vision. And I can see my future. And you know what it is? It's fucking bright. It's fucking bright. And you like how I censored myself there? I didn't edit out the fucking... I didn't edit out the word. I literally bleeped it out of my own mouth as I said it. Because that's talent. Thank you for listening. Please go enter to win David Warren Flash's book. I appreciate you for being here. You're the best. Bye-bye.